Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, a show dedicated to our shared surroundings with industry heavyweights that are dedicated to designing, developing, manufacturing, and disrupting the status quo in order to make all our spaces cleaner and safer for everyone. Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, everyone. My guest today is Scott Farbman. He's an architect based in Chicago. Scott, great to have you on. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Gary. Uh, before we start talking about what you do and your background and what your work, it's very, very specialized. Why don't you share a little bit about your career path today? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I'm sure most people say this, but I personally think that my career path has been pretty interesting. Uh, I went to school and, and was trained traditionally as an architect, uh, spent six years at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, um, getting my degrees. And, and out of school, I went to work at a commercial architecture firm in Chicago, did a lot of great work and spent uh, my first five or six years working in, in that kind of realm. And it, it got to a point where I started to think about a couple things. I, I wasn't very happy with the work I was doing. I was daydreaming back to my time in grad school, really focusing on a lot of environmental and sustainable uh, practices and, and trying to implement those into the, you know, designs and in buildings that I worked on or that I'm working on at a practice level from a day-to-day -day perspective. And a lot of that just wasn't coming through for me. And I decided at that point that I needed to make a, a career pivot uh, to, to stay happy and, and to stay involved in the industry. Otherwise, I was going to burn out and, and just end up in a bad place. So, Five years in, five, six years in, I decided to pivot uh, and and I put some feelers out there to some industry connections. And I ended up at a MEP high performance engineering firm in Chicago that uh, primarily provided you know mechanical electrical plumbing design, but also had a high performance sustainability team within the company in its own studio where I found a place for myself to uh, get more involved on energy analysis, more involved on sustainability consulting from green certification perspective, primarily lead at that time uh, in you know like 2015, 2016. Um, and and I basically saw an opportunity for myself to uh, build something within this company that would support my interests, passions, and desires in the industry. Um, a lot of that focusing on energy efficiency and sustainability at the time. Um, being in the MEP space actually provided me a lot of exposure into HVAC work because that's a lot of the design work that they do. And, and that's where I started to get uh, a lot more um, better understanding of the way heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems work, specifically ventilation, you know, this is something that we, I think, take for granted a lot in the spaces that we live in and, and visit or work in or uh, go to on a daily basis. And uh, HVAC is this like packaged term, right? But you really need to pull the V out of that to, to understand 
the implications that ventilation has on a space and has on the occupants that use it. Um, and I think this is, is still an issue today, but it was very much an issue when I started working in this realm. But increased ventilation rates or putting more strategy, time, effort into ventilation design always was at odds with energy performance. If you're bringing in more outdoor, uh, more outdoor air to keep people healthy um, and, and safe, if it's cold outside, you have to condition that air before it comes in. And if you're bringing in more air than you need to, say by code or by a lead ASHRAE protocol, you're penalized for the energy spent to condition that air. So we've always had this like, pendulum swing that shifts in between energy efficiency and indoor air quality. And for the longest time, I think that that pendulum was weighted toward the energy efficiency side of things. And I think now within the last three, five years or so, or, or I'll say, you know, specifically because of COVID, the pendulum shifted more towards the indoor air quality side of things, right? And now that we're, you know, I still believe we're very much in COVID and COVID needs to be considered. I think that pendulum is kind of in the middle now where we're able to think about how to implement indoor air quality strategies from an HVAC perspective that doesn't result in a substantial energy penalty at the same time. And that energy penalty is understood to be not a negative thing, but a benefit because it's about the occupants and the people in the spaces. You bet. And in this subject, as we both know, it's extraordinarily complicated, but, you know, it's a given that anybody in a building, the building owners, occupants, they want comfort first. Obviously, there has to be conditioned air that's reliable. Then building owners, as you know, I mean, they spend an enormous amount of money on utilities, on energy, and they want their bills reduced. And then thirdly, there's this thing called decarbonization, and then finally, at the kind of at the end, there's indoor air quality. In your opinion, uh, this can be accomplished, can it not, to merge all of these, you know, the comfort, the energy efficiency, the decarbonization, and the IAQ. They, they can actually be merged together so that it makes sense for building owners and operators moving forward. I think that they can 100% be merged together. And, and when we think about design strategies and, and implementations, it, just like anything, we have to think holistically about what we do. And if we make a decision, it needs to be considered through all those three, four, five items, lenses individually, but also together from a systems uh, perspective. So, yeah, and I, I think that's a great you bring up a couple of great points. Thermal comfort is something that has been tried and true for the longest time. But personally, and in, and in our practice specifically, we've expanded how we discuss and talk about comfort. It's not just thermal comfort anymore for us. It's occupant comfort, and occupant comfort includes thermal components. It includes. Uh, visual components, you know, daylight and glare and things like that, and includes uh, other senses and, and things that impact the way that we as humans use and experience a space. And, and with that comes health and wellness um, in, in fresh air and in a space feeling, you know, nice, clean, easy to be in, not stuffy, um, and in a deterrent 
to be there. You bet. You know, it's 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 an incredible it's an incredible long term opportunity now. Did you by chance see 60 Minutes on Sunday night with Joe Allen? And if you did, what what were your thoughts? I, I didn't watch it yet. It's I flagged it. It's it's bookmarked. I really need to watch it. Um, Joe Allen does a good job promoting a lot of these topics and, and bringing it to the forefront. And I think it's great that indoor air quality got that level of spotlight and feature on a, a mainstream publication platform. Yeah, I, I agree. I, obviously, you know, he didn't have a lot of time to talk about, you know, indoor air quality in any depth. But I, what I really liked about it was that uh, CBX 60 Minutes uh, aired a topic on indoor air quality. Um, as you probably know, there's an enormous amount of energy-related news literally every day worldwide. But relatively speaking, that other indoor environment, there's very, very little news. And that's what I liked about the 60 Minutes segment on Sunday night. A lot of experts, Scott, believe that dry air is more conducive to the transmission of disease indoors. What are your thoughts about low humidity? <laughs> well, I'm not, uh, I, I won't call myself an expert and I don't want to speak to the science completely that that I don't fully comprehend and understand, but I've heard and read similar approaches. The lower uh, or, or the higher the humidity, the, the, the less opportunity there is for virus transmission. Again, we're at odds with other protocols and approaches in the industry where in the winter specifically, we, we do try to keep indoor humidity lower because if there's too much moisture in the air and you have cold surfaces in your house or your building, that creates opportunities for condensation. And if condensation starts forming on windows, drywall, uh, materials within your wall assembly, you could lead towards uh, mold growth and other bad stuff that happens, you know, behind the scenes that you might not be able to see. So again, we're always at odds with worst case scenarios, negative outcomes, negative impacts, and we kind of have to choose. Now more than ever, the individual has to make a choice between if they want to prioritize their short-term health <laughs> or, or their long-term health. And it, it shouldn't be that it shouldn't be that way. We yeah, shouldn't no. have to make that decision. We should just have a space that's healthy and, and works for us. And we shouldn't have to be worried about mold today and COVID or virus transmission tomorrow. Um, sure. And then there's asbestos, there's formaldehyde and PM 2.5. And as you know, this is extraordinarily complicated. Having said that, what, what type of questions do your clients ask you about indoor air quality and best solutions? What do you recommend? <laughs> uh, we get a lot of good questions, but we also get a lot of hesitancy towards adopting some of the the trends and strategies that I, I truly think we need to be implementing across the marketplace. I think we get a lot of questions right now asking, do we need to be designing all electric buildings or, or can we continue to use gas-fired equipment? That's probably number one right now. Um, and I think, you know, in, in regard to a first cost perspective, developers and, and people who are building buildings still like to lean towards the cheaper side and in and, and for all intents and purposes, that's typically gas-fired equipment right now. Prices of heat pumps coming down, 
but also going up at the same time because of some of the incentives and rebates we have available to us. Still expensive, getting cheaper, but it, it's not always a slam dunk for everyone's budget, whether you are in an apartment, single family home, or developing a 50 unit multifamily apartment building. Um, and we also get questions about, you know, should we be testing indoor air quality? There's a, a, a lead credit that gives up to two points to test and, and document your indoor air quality. And then of course you can go above and beyond that with the well certification, you could do more elaborate testing, you could do real-time monitoring and all this stuff. And we're starting to, I think because of COVID have clients ask us and be more interested in paying for testing or, or real-time monitoring to ensure that the spaces they're trying to rent out, lease out, et cetera, uh, meet the standards that typical people are, are expecting with today's environment. Last year, Kaiser Health News reported that over 2,000 schools across 44 states bought air purifiers, Scott, certainly with the best of intentions. There was a lot of different brands that were sold. And uh, one particular type of technology, bipolar ionization, uh, you know, a couple of companies generated millions in sales. So there's a lot of controversy, I'm sure you're aware about bipolar ionization, but, you know, regarding indoor air quality. What, do you, what are your thoughts, if any, about bipolar no. ionization? I, I can't speak too much about it. Uh, all I know is that from what I was reading in, in the rec recommendations being made that you just kind of want to keep it simple with the HEPA filter. And that's going to be the safest, most cost-effective way to providing indoor air quality in, in individual spaces. So I, I haven't got too much into the bipolarization or the, you know, some of the other strategies that are, are being investigated. I've tried to keep it simple in, in my recommendations um, as, uh, you know, inclusively agreed upon as, as possible. What, what's your thoughts about the long-term future of indoor air quality monitoring? It seems like the public which of course is primarily laypersons. I, it just seems like the long-term future is more and more people are gonna wanna have an idea about what they might be breathing inside I, their home or in a building. I, I think so, definitely. Um, I think there's a couple really great things happening in the marketplace and, and just started happening over the past couple of years. The price of at-home monitoring systems, whether it's like an aware element and air things view plus or Amazon product, or there's a lot of cost effective and affordable options now for everyday people to bring it home and, and it being a di in a easy to digest format to understand and say, my VOCs are through the roof right now. What could have happened? Oh, I just opened a bottle of wine. And, and that's impacting it. Or, you know, we just bought that rug off Amazon and it must be, you know, off gassing. Like, what do we do about that? Open a window or door, or turn on your ventilation system a bit higher. Um, I, 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 I truly believe that this is going to pick up in the everyday person space. Um, I'm 100% into it, Gary. I've got, I just did a count before our session today. I've got 11 
individual indoor air quality monitors in my house right now uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I'm just very interested in the technology and uh, I'm kind of using my house as this like living lab experiment to test different things, um, to watch different things and to see how I could improve the way that the house operates based on that data analysis. Um, and it's, I think in the commercial space, it's a little bit, it's going to be a little bit slower, which may seem counterintuitive in, in my rationale there is if these entities are measuring and monitoring things, they have some liability there, unfortunately. And if things are bad and they don't do what they need to do to fix it, they could be liable for for bad things that happen to the occupants. Um, so I think I, I was just going to I was just going to mention that topic. I'm I'm glad that you brought it up. I, personally, I think building owners will take a close look at indoor air quality monitoring. Of course, the way many of them think, they're going to start thinking about what their return on investment is. But you know, those potential liabilities, whether or not they're going to want to get involved and potentially make them liable, uh, I just don't see them in general, providing transparent indoor air quality monitoring data uh, to all occupants on the premises. That's just the thought. I, I think it's going to depend on the building type in the space that the building is in. So in, in this is all just anecdotal, of course, but I see there being a big drive and push for this in, for example, class A office spaces. If you're developing a class A office building and you're trying to attract tenants like Google, Amazon, Apple, you know, whatever major tech companies, Fortune 500 companies, there's a certain demand and expectation for technologies to be implemented into the space and for these things to be thought of and considered. So I think that's sort of a slam dunk in the commercial space. I think more of the gray areas like apartment buildings and maybe retail spaces and, and things like that where or class B, class C office spaces where you're you're not going after the the Googles of the world. Um, that's a bit more of a wild west still, unfortunately, which stinks because the cost of implementing these strategies isn't that high at all. Um, it's just an extra line item on a construction budget that a developer may or may not want to consider. Yeah, you, you're you probably aware of this, but there, there are definitely some experts, Scott, that think that to most effectively improve indoor air quality, you have to have an idea what's in it to start and then, on, <laughs> and then ongoing. It sounds like, you know, it's kind of common sense. What are, what are your thoughts about that? I, I'm going to butcher the quote or the saying, but it's something along the lines of you can't manage what you don't measure. Um, so I, yeah, I agree 100%. In order to have some sort of beneficial outcome, you need to know what's happening in the first place. So it's, it's I Gary, something I promote on every single project as a, a an important consideration and a strategy that I think needs to be implemented. And whether or not it ultimately does get implemented is is up to the client, but I do my best to bring all of the information, research, data, et cetera, to the table and, and also try to provide them cost information too. I think 
something consultants get caught up in all the time is promoting all these fancy measures, strategies, equipments, technologies, and they don't think about the cost associated to it. So if you can come to the table with some cost data, it, it makes the conversation that much more informative. You probably have some challenges with building codes. Do you? How do you, does your firm work with uh, building codes? You know the local codes, and how how do you think more importantly how the codes going to change in the future to protect human health indoors? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't seen anything specifically that has indoor air quality requirements built into it just yet. I think where most city municipalities are. Uh, what the stuff is referring to IMC or the International Mechanical Code, and IMC kind of dictates what sort of ventilation rates and things you need to do in the space to be compliant. But that's all tied back to fresh air per person or fresh air per square foot of area. And I think that those things need to be expanded on to consider more than just outdoor air per person, which is a good metric, but there's more you could do, whether it's, you know, uh, air scrubbing, cleaning, infiltration inside, or, um, you know, some of the technologies you mentioned that may or may not be beneficial to, you know, people's health. Um, but I, I think that codes will evolve to hopefully consider IQ again, more holistically and not just on a, a CFM per square foot basis. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, this is a whole new frontier. What what do you think about the wildfire smoke? Is that, is that, will that change architecture and design uh, in the future? Over 100 million people reportedly in the Midwest, upper Midwest, in the eastern part of the United States. I mean, this is absolutely terrible and unprecedented. What, what do you think is going to happen uh, regarding wildfire smoke and architecture and design in the future? I can't tell you what I think is going to happen, but I can tell you what I hope is going to happen. And I hope that what happens is learning from this past wildfire season and really understanding the benefit of filtered mechanical ventilation in all of the spaces we use and live in. Um, <clears throat> We experienced it at home in Chicago. There were a number, a, a, and this was just Chicago, right? Like we're not even yeah. near adjacent to, to the wildfires up in Canada at the time, but there were a substantial numbers, a substantial number of high particulate events through the entire summer. And I saw that firsthand with the filter that I pulled out of my energy recovery ventilator or my ERV in our house. I took that thing out and it was charcoal black in this like sticky tar that would just, you know, blow your mind if you saw it. And you think to yourself, if I didn't have this machine bringing in fresh air for me and my family uh, at a continuous rate or a semi-continuous rate, we would be breathing this stuff, whether it's coming through an open window, uh, cracks and seams in our walls or, or through other penetrations in the building through infiltration, that stuff would be filtered through my lungs, not filtered through my MERV-13 ERV filter. Yeah. And that, that to me just kind of, I had an epiphany 
and I use in in this is maybe where I'm getting it into some strong opinion piece pieces here, but I used to be 100% pro operable window natural ventilation. Do it. It's awesome. Free free outdoor air, possibly free cooling. Um, it's great. Why not do it? But when you see what's happening with the outdoor air quality, it, whether it's from wildfire smoke events <clears throat> or whether it's from me living in an urban context with a city bus that runs by your apartment or house, uh, you know, five times an hour, there's a lot of bad stuff out there and it comes through your windows if you have them open. I'm not saying you don't need or shouldn't have operable windows in your house or in your building, but what I am saying is I think the primary means of bringing in fresh air to our spaces should be through mechanical filtered ventilation. Have your windows, use them when the outdoor conditions are right, but really rely on that, unfortunately, that machine and technology to bring in your fresh air to keep you safe and healthy. With, with the wildfire smoke, how long did it take? About thirty days, Scott. How, how often did you check your filter when it went from being, I, I would presume, pretty new, and then yeah. all of a sudden one day, whenever that was, a week later, thirty days later, it's, it's charcoal black or whatever. Uh, a lot of these manufacturers recommend changing the filter under normal conditions every three months. But what would be your recommendation if the wildfire smoke? passes through an area, how often should they change their filter? And on top of that, many people oftentimes don't change their filter. I mean, I think America has a filter change problem. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a different subject. Um, on the, the equipment that I have, I believe the manufacturer's recommendation is check it every three months, change it every six months. I think you can like vacuum and clean it at the three-month interval. But during the summer with the wildfire events, it, the first time I checked it at the three, the first three month interval, it was, you know, looked hideous. Yeah. We started checking it at one month after that and, and we'd flip them out if, if we felt like we needed to, to make that change. Um, what stinks is they're kind of expensive, right? This isn't a couple dollars per filter, it's $50 per filter. And I think that's, something that hopefully can come down in price as these strategies get implemented more at scale across the country. You bet. Uh, last month, the Biden administration, and I think there's something like 25 U.S. state governors uh, have agreed that they want 20 million heat pumps installed across America uh, before 2030. What are you seeing up in the Chicago area? What What type of talk are you hearing from your clients and, and you you work with HVAC contractors, I presume. Uh, a lot of confusion going on in the HVAC world. It's been it's unprecedented what happened is what is happening. Yeah, I, I think I referred to something else as the wild, wild west earlier on the podcast. I think the heat pump situation is also kind of a wild, wild west uh, environment as well. I, I'm definitely seeing a, a big uptick in people asking about installing or talking about heat pumps in Chicago. Um, there's a couple folks who post monthly or annual data on heat pump sales in the United States. And I think that has demonstrated a, a significant increase as well. So the data is there to suggest that people are buying heat pumps. But I think 
that comes with an interesting set of challenges and, and complications. You need to have contractors in your your area who are interested in installing those heat pumps. You know, a lot of traditional folks may default to what they know and, and what has been done for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and then some some other additional challenges or complications are depends what climate zone you're you're in. A heat pump in California is going to look different than a heat pump in Chicago or other cold climates. And the technology is is definitely getting better where there are cold climate heat pump options available, like Mitsubishi Hyperheat, for example. Um, but as temperatures get colder outside, those heat pumps don't don't just lose performance, they also lose heating capacity. So there's this give and take between how big does the heat pump need to be to provide you heat in a negative degree day condition? Um, should you be thinking about backup heat or supplementary heat sources? And um, it, it's not easy. It's not just go to Home Depot and buy an 84 kBTU furnace. It's takes more effort. It takes a load calculation. It takes a lot of stuff that I think your day-to-day contractor might not be doing on on every project they go to. Do you think it's, in your opinion, do you think it's definitely better for indoor air quality heat pump tech? Um, I was going to say it's not relevant at first, but I think there is some relevancy there. If your current heating and cooling system is running on natural gas or some sort of gas or fuel, then getting that combustion out of your house or building is uh, a benefit to your indoor heat uh, approach. If if you weren't using natural gas and you had some other source of heat, say it was like um, electric radiators or, or I don't know, baseboard radiators or something like that, and you're just switching that system for a heat pump, I, there's no indoor air quality benefit there from my perspective. I, I do think something that has uh, irritated me a little bit with what is happening at the federal level with the Biden administration. And I'm grateful for all of the work they're doing to uh, promote decarbonization, electrification, and the focus on, on heat pumps is critical. But there's not a lot of talk around ventilation, right, or having tax credits or incentives available for putting in an ERV in your home or retrofitting an ERV into your home, which is actually quite, could be quite complicated and, and expensive. We got quoted, I, I think, twelve to $14,000 to do two ERV retrofits in our house um, last year. And, and that's it a massive amount of money to pay just to have a healthy indoor environment in the place you live and spend a lot of time in. And I think there should be subsidies, incentives, rebates associated to ventilation equipment alongside of heat pump equipment for spacing and cooling. Yeah, absolutely. That's well put. Uh, obviously, every home and building is different. Uh, you know, from what my understanding is, a heat pump is not necessarily always the best fit for a home or building. That really requires an expert to come in and obviously assess the situation. Where do you think the indoor air quality industry will be, Scott, in five years from now? As you know, it's not tightly it's not tightly regulated uh, like food and water. Do you think we're heading in that direction? And if so, maybe someday. Will buildings be ventilation certified? Yeah, that 
this is a great question. I think new constructions heading that way just by the means of, of model codes and, and things like that. I think where the big unknown gray area is what's happening with existing buildings. And, and to me, that's even more important. There's I sees of existing houses, buildings, whatever it is, and there's no or very little mandated requirements of, of fixing those existing conditions. So I think I think I, IQ is going to be baked in nicely to new construction over the next couple of years. And, and after that, it's just going to be as a second thought. But I think where we need to focus and, and, and figure this out is existing buildings. You bet. Yeah, along those lines, do you think that, that uh, someday there'll be a, a very clear cut line drawn, so to speak, about certain technologies, IAQ technologies that are endorsed by a combination of leading experts and authorities, you know, the ASHRAE, the EPA, CDC, uh, the American Lung Association, Harvard. There's, you know, there's a lot of differences of opinion and there's certainly a lot of money to be made. And as long as the industry is not tightly regulated and you've got this massive public that primarily are laypersons, uh, it just seems like there's an enormous ongoing need for the public to be educated regarding indoor air quality, but energy efficiency and heat pumps, uh, you know, and all those good things. And the public, you know, I think most people, all they want to know is, okay, how much is it going to cost? How, you know, when's I, when am I going to get my return on my investment? And if I have a heat pump, will I be warm this winter? You know, this is not easily addressed, and it's really going to rely on experts. There's a lot of, uh, it's well known in the HVAC industry, there's a skilled shortage labor, skilled labor shortage right now. And, and with all these heat pumps that are going to be installed, you know, there's going to be a lot of problems as far as installing it. What are you, what are you hearing up in Chicago area from contractors? Do they have enough uh, skilled labor? Um. <clears throat> I think on the commercial side of things, the the labor's there, and we've been able, again, anecdotally, been able to design and get buildings built that are all electric and have systems that promote healthy indoor environments. I, again, I think the the big problem area is existing buildings, uh, more particularly single-family homes or small apartment buildings, where there isn't that labor available right now to transition those spaces to more efficient and, and healthy uh, buildings. And I just to go back to my ERV quote example, I we got quoted a huge number just to, to retrofit an yep. ERV into our home. And um, it, the demand for contracting work is out of this world, right? And it the supply for contractors is not at the same level. And I think that unfortunately puts us in a position of ridiculously high quotes and being at the mercy of, of these folks. And it, hopefully that changes because it's just not affordable for the typical person to make these improvements on their home without substantial uh, subsidies or, or aid from government. I, I'm on the same page with you. I, obviously, people have to be able to afford 
you know, this energy transition that we're going through. It's unlike anything that's ever happened. Let me ask you a question. It's not meant to be a trick question, but there's never been a consensus amongst a combination of leading authorities and experts like yourself, what clean air indoors actually is. If somebody asked you, Scott, what's clean air indoors? I actually, what is it? What would you say? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think as a lay person, I would say if my indoor air quality monitor says things are good, I think I could, if I step away and don't think about all of the specifics and particulars I know about indoor air quality, I think I as a person could look at that monitor and if it's telling me things are good, I, I could trust that. Okay. Um, me as someone who has access to more information looks at it uh, quite a bit differently, right? Like that air quality monitor could be throwing a not good sign because the temperature is out of its typical range if maybe it's too cold in here or too warm but like me as a person or my family uh are okay with that level of temperature but i think it, it there's so as you dive in deeper and deeper it goes from sensor telling me things are okay cool then i think the next layer is is my co2 uh, in parts per million below a certain threshold. Okay, cool. Uh, it, then you go into PM 2.5 in, in TVOCs and, and maybe even layer in humidity. Uh, but why stop there? Let's look at radon too. Not a lot of sensors have the ability to measure and monitor radon, but radon could be a substantial problem. Um, it, it's just kind of endless, right? I, I think simply speaking, if you can keep your carbon dioxide or your CO2 readings below a certain threshold. That threshold might be different for you, Gary, than it is for me. A lot of people think above 1,000 is kind of the cutoff, 1,000 parts per million. Um, we, we go a little bit more uh, extreme. I think if you asked me or my spouse, we would say 700, 750 is where we would want maybe more fresh air to start being brought in to, to fix things there. Um, or, you know, if we're cooking, our approach might be a little bit different. We might run the ventilation system a little bit harder if we're cooking uh, something, you know, that might kick up a bunch of particulate matter. Um, it, 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 it's uh, That's a hard question. I don't think there's yeah. a simple answer there. It kind of, you're right, kind of a trick question. Yeah, and I, I certainly didn't mean it. Hey, Scott, we're, we're running short on time. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, I right now I'm spending my most of my social media time on LinkedIn. Uh, I I make a lot of posts, not just about what uh, we're doing professionally through my company and and some of our commercial work, but I spend a lot of time posting on the adventures of my house and and the things that I'm learning and experiencing with, within our own home as I start to lean in heavier into indoor air quality monitoring. And, and now I'm getting into this thing called the Home Assistant, which is a, a building automation system. It's an open source platform that you could use to pull in all this information into one place and then start to tell different equipment devices in your house to do certain things if sensors are picking up high levels of CO2, turn on our ERV. Um, 
send signals, do do all this cool stuff. So it, it, LinkedIn is where I post a lot of the content that I'm exploring, not just from a business perspective, but also from a personal home perspective too. I, I appreciate it very much, Scott. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the Indoor AirPod. Um, I'll, I definitely would like to have you back on at a later date to update us with your work and all that good stuff. But thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, it's been great, Gary. Thank you so much for inviting me. I would love to come back. Thank you for listening to the Indoor AirPod, produced by Gaslight STL, your podcast partner. Be sure to give our show a follow to keep up with upcoming guests and topics. And please reach out with any questions or guest suggestions.